0: Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on an absolutely glorious late winter's day in the hanging upland valley of Wattenlath with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello Mark.
1: (laughs) Gorgeous to be with you here. What a magical place, love? The Water End of the Water End Barn. A farmstead at the foot of a wonderful little lake, reflecting great crag and you're looking up to a high saddle on Earl Scarf. It's a beautiful spot. Today, Mark, on our 99th episode,
0: we're returning to one of the themes we have returned to time and time again through our history, which is how we care for these landscapes that we love. We've met some fabulous people in the past, Lee Schofield with his great work over at Horswater, Danny Teasdale mixing farm heritage with biodiversity restoration in the Matterdale Valley. But today we're going to concentrate on what organisations like the National Trust, the Cumbria Wildlife Trust can do together on a landscape scale, particularly in areas that are incredibly popular with tourists to manage these landscapes sensitively so they're still here with us looking even better than they do today in a hundred years' time. We've got two guests talking about very slightly different elements of the conservation of this valley. Well, we've
1: got Roy Henderson who wonderfully shared our seventh episode which seems light years ago. Ancient history. Absolutely, but uh, it's fresh every time to talk to somebody who has a great commitment to this valley, this overall Borradale scene. Roy has been connected with this area for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. He's part of the fabric of this area. A second guest we're going to meet up on the tops. We've got Sean
0: from the Cumbria Wildlife Trust who's been instrumental in a large area of peat bog restoration up on an area I think called the Pewits. 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 Yeah, that Lapwings. I remember walking along that ridge line, high-toed ridge line. Ooh, first 20 years ago, and it was a horror show. Um, in fact, Wainwright noted it in his guides, didn't he? Armboff fell in particular. It was an obstacle course going between peat hags, and that's all gone.
1: Yes. And it's wonderful and flourishing again. Interesting, once upon a time, somebody did a bit of graffiti on the footpath sign here, long time ago. It used to say, footbath to Armboff. <laughs> very very good
0: okay well look we don't want to hang around too long even though it would be easy with this fabulous view i can see roy he's over there by the outflow of the tarn. let's go and meet roy and start today's country stride
1: What a calm, gentle morning this is. Perhaps it's the last frost of this last winter. There's a warmth in the air and a lovely reflection on the stream, which gently glides out of this tarn, which is uh, sort of symbiotic with the setting. And I'm in the company of a good friend of Country Stride, Roy Henderson, who... I believe, Roy, you've been connected with the National Trust for rather a long time. Could you give us a little bit of a background to your association with the National Trust and this setting?
2: Uh, good morning. I've worked for the National Trust now for 40 years, all the time within the Borodil Valley, working as a ranger, or wardens as we used to be called. Uh, but prior to that, I did my Duke of Edinburgh ward scheme, working as a volunteer in the Borodil Valley, and then lucky enough when I left school to get a job with the Trust. Uh, and it's a fantastic place to work and live.
1: It's the whole world to you, really. Oh, I love it, undoubtedly. So your general patch? Borodil Newlands Valley, and that in- obviously includes the Wat Valley itself. This Hanging Valley is like it is because of one geological or, or environmental effect, and its glaciation.
2: Yeah, as we look around the valley, there's huge amounts of evidence that the glaciers were here. So we've got the Tarn itself, uh, we've got the Hanging Valley which would surprise view people go and look at, and there's the intersection of the main valley. Uh, we've got rush Moutonnes throughout the whole valley, as you can see the polished shiny rock, and then the plucking on the downward side. The glacier was moving to the north in this area and sweeping out from the central fells out towards the edges. As the glacier came within to this valley and it dropped down, it also ploughed and dipped, and I imagine it as water flowing through the landscape, bulldozing its way through, and where it hits hard rock, it rises up, when it gets softer rock, it digs further down.
1: So Presumably, this hanging valley had an element of softer area that it exploited.
2: It scoured out, and also the pressure wave as it dipped down. It dug deeper where there was a greater pressure of ice.
1: Looking around this scene, you can see all sorts of textures of heather, pasture, copse of woodland, even holly I can see. So there's a whole range of habitats that are visible. But this is the product of agriculture to a large extent. Oh, very much so. I mean, what we see isn't a natural
2: environment, or the majority isn't. It's man-made, so we've got the farming histories and layers and layers of farming history within the valley that we can see. So as you look across the valley here, where the break of the slope is, we've got the original wall that was an early Viking settlement, a Norse people settlement, uh, and that's the original Ringarth. And that's now walling in or fencing in the in by land. And then just beyond that, we've got the intake land and then the fell land above that. So
1: that wall is... 300 years old or much older than that? Much older than that. So we
2: think some of the pollards, which we're going to look across at on the other side of the lake, could be 800 years old. So we've got evidence of people working and farming this landscape for at least 800 years.
1: So how do you plan to guide us around to give us a, a sense of your endeavours? So I thought initially we'd look across at the, uh, the outgang on the other side of the town. We'd we'll look at some very old
2: ash trees and some really old pollards, and talk about the ash and, and how they're being affected at the moment with ash dieback. Uh, we'll then go and look at the quite new hydro scheme we have in, in Borrodale and talk a little bit about the hydro projects and the uh, renewable projects that National just have, and then go up onto the high fells and look at the peat bog restoration work that's going up there. And as we're walking up onto the fells, we're going through a fairly newly planted woodland pasture that we've put in.
1: There's this fabulous little bridge at the outflow of the lake a lovely stone arched bridge with cobbling on it and actually my eyes as i come over are alerted to a single cobble inscribed on it is hrh charles 2205 1995. so there you are the current king is represented here what's the story that goes with that roy
2: so the national trust team though at the time uh recobbling this bridge Prince Charles, now King Charles, was visiting the area and they had this done themselves and then presented it to uh, Prince Charles who then set it in place.
1: It's the crowning glory. That's a fascinating track we've just been up and had a look at, which is the Outgang, which leads up on towards Great Crag. One of the significant elements of this setting is the human travel and routes that are evident here. We've got various routes here, Roy. You can give us a bit of a story about the range of them. What's the Outgang as that opening gambit?
2: Yeah, we've got two outgangs in the what-end of the valley, one on this side and one on the other side, and it's literally to drive the sheep out through so they're not going through into the intakes or the in by land, so they can get them out onto the fell. On either side of the outgang, we've got these fantastic walls, dry stone walls, which allow the sheep to be driven through the landscape.
1: And the other routes here, there's uh, the one that comes over Puddingstone Bank from Rossway. What was the heritage of that route? So we've got a series of Pacos routes within the uh, Lake District as well, and that was one of the Pacos routes, and that
2: then continues on up and over to uh, Thirlmere. And we can see that across the other side of the valley.
1: So predominantly, anything that was coming out of the upper part of Borodell was actually doing that traverse and then over High Tove. Yeah, so Fountains
2: Abbey and Furnace Abbey on different parts of the valley, uh, different parts of the Borrowdale Valley, and it was split one way. And everything from uh, this side went towards Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire. The wool and the profits and the money would be going in that direction, through the packhorse system, via Wat and then Thirlmere
1: interestingly as we look eastwards down towards the outflow of the lake from where we're standing we can see raised beck and either side of it there are tracks now the one on the right can you describe the nature of that particular route the lower section of that path uh, the pitch path uh, and pitching is like a
2: stone built path is the original pitching and then as we go further up there's more modern pitching on top of that And pitching has evolved for us, so it was initially very much for the pack horses to get through, and now we wanted for people to be able to walk more comfortably through the hills, and then stop the erosion on either side of the path. So you can see how the pitching has developed over the last 30, 40 years, uh, and our teams have changed the styles of pitching.
1: Originally they tried to replicate what they saw, and that meant they tend to be more of a slope rather than stepped.
2: Yeah, that's right, exactly that. We copied and mimicked what went in the past and then realised that was designed for horses and pack horses as opposed to people. So that's why the pitching has changed and developed.
1: Now, the path on the left-hand side, now, can you describe that to us? We have got a zigzag path going up the left-hand side of the gill as well. And I believe that was the corpse road.
2: So because the uh, two abbeys owned different parts of the valley, if you died in the what end of the Valley you'd be taken across to Thirlmere to be buried uh, because that was the nearest consecrated ground that was owned by the abbey
1: to this hamlet. So that means the Withburn church which uh, survives despite the flooding of leaf's water to create Thirlmere. Yeah. Now just looking back to the gate we've just come through from the outgang, there is a pollided tree. Can you tell us something about the tree?
2: Yeah, pollarding trees was a method of cropping the tree effectively. So they're taken sort of eight, ten foot off the ground so that it's out of the grazing height for animals, for sheep and for cattle. Uh, So it allows the tree to continue to grow. They also prolong the life of the trees massively. We've got a huge number of ash pollarded in this valley. They really like pollarding ash because it gave fodder for the animals in the winter. So they could chop the branches off, put the branches down and uh, they'd eat the bark off them. But they'd also take tree hay off the uh, pollards as well. So cut them when they were finger thick sort of branches and then dry that for fodder for the winter. It also gives really good firewood ash, as you know, and timber for tools like any hand tools or for uh, carts and things like that.
1: One of the uh, issues uh, nationally and certainly locally is ash dieback. How evident is this in this valley? Yeah, it's swept through the whole valley, really. We're losing huge numbers of
2: ash trees. We're hoping that a lot of our, or some of our uh, ancient trees in the Water Valley will survive. It's theorised at the moment that, depending on the uh, fungal coronlies and uh, lichens which are already growing on the trees, that might give the trees some sort of defence, but that's just a theory at the moment. Uh, But we've got potentially 800-year-old trees here, and it'd be awful if we lost them all, but we are losing a number. So what's your local strategy? Ash trees that are near footpaths or buildings were having to actually fell if they have uh, the ash dieback disease for health and safety reasons and just to protect people. Anything that's not near any footpaths or buildings we're leaving to try and see how many ashes survive and then they will hopefully then produce seeds which are uh, resistant to uh, the fungal disease.
1: Is there a proportion that you've identified currently, like 30% that are surviving? It's still early days for that. We slipped over the bridge mingled with a few people who are coalescing on that spot and we've come down the road a little way and stepped over a wall style, and come down to visit a new element in the story of wattenlow very unobtrusive despite what we can hear in the background the sound there's this little unit now roy can you tell us the story of what we're looking at here yes as you say this is the latest chapter in
2: hydropower into the wattenlow valley so 60 years ago ish the, uh, the locals actually installed their own hydro system, which was great at the time, but they couldn't all cook the Sunday dinner at the same time because it didn't produce that much power. So they literally had to uh, arrange who switched the ovens on at different times of the day. Then they got mains power, so the national grid was then brought into the valley in seventy eight, which they thought was fantastic because they could all cook the Sunday dinner at the same time, and the hydro fell out of use. We've now reinstated it, put a brand new system in, which is putting power back into the national grid, and obviously with uh, newer, more modern hydro systems is producing a lot more power than it ever used to.
1: Right, I think I'll open this door. I can hear the summing. I'd like to see what's going on inside here. I'll open this door. And looking inside I can see a red generator spinning round, and a big pipe leading on the far side of it and then there's a unit on the wall which has a figure on it. I'll just move over to have a look at the figure. And it currently says 14 kilowatts. I'll close the door. Now, Roy, can you tell us what all that is about? Yes, yeah, so at
2: the moment it's only running at 14 kilowatts an hour. It can up to 70 kilowatts an hour. And this is the smallest power station we have in Borrodale. Uh, we've got two others, Coombe Gill, which will produce 240 kilowatts an hour, and Honister, which will produce 100 kilowatts an hour. And you say at the moment it's not running anywhere near its full capacity. And the river always has the first priority on the water. So there's a little V-slot to the side of where we take the water out. And as the water drops
1: below a certain level,
2: we take a little bit off the top, but the river takes the priority.
1: In terms of the overall needs for the valley, in terms of power, how much are you able to supply? When they're all working, we were producing most of the power for the Borrowdale Valley, which is phenomenal
2: really. We could produce a lot more, but the national grid's infrastructure isn't big enough for us to be able to put more power stations in the valley and the ones we have um, people drive past them walk past them without noticing the majority of it's buried underground the pipes are buried there's a very small intake out of the streams and there as you can see lovely stone-faced buildings so they fit very nicely within the
1: landscape another one at hollister it's just above sea toller and uh, you would think it was just a little farm barn has it been quite a challenging process it's one of the jobs i've really enjoyed being involved with it has had its challenging aspects Talking to the
2: locals, they were on board right from day one. They bought into it, they really appreciate the fact we're producing green energy which is being used locally. Every job has its challenges. Coombe Gill working through some of the bedrock there, Borodil Volcanics incredibly hard. So, yeah, the digger did have a, quite a
1: hard time going through some of the large boulders. Presumably, you've had to do certain uh, mitigations in this setting, predominantly to sustain the fish levels here.
2: Yeah, so the three we've installed in Borrowdale, the three hydro plants we've installed in Borroldale, have got waterfalls below them, so they're fish blockers effectively, so we don't have migratory fish. So we haven't had to put fish ladders in next to them. If we had, we would have just put a fish ladder in next to them. In this area, to put the pipeline in, I had to fell six uh, large trees, but then we've taken that opportunity, because we've opened the canopy up, to put several hundred native trees in, blackthorn, hawthorn, hazel, and some oak as well and I planted them quite thickly. It's so got dense little pockets of trees growing up, which I'm really hoping will help the otters that are coming into the valley have little lay-up halts, so somewhere nice and quiet. that's fairly densely wooded, so the otters feel safe and just
1: have a little rest spot. One of the interesting stories connected with this setting and the broader Borrodale setting is the status of otters, their revival to this setting.
2: So I believe that the otters were persecuted and shot out of Borrodale between the First and the Second World War. And then we had foot and mouth, which was horrendous, but it gave the otters uh, an opportunity to get back into the valley. So it was so quiet, there was very few visitors, obviously, in the area. That's 22 years ago. They then bred in the valley, and they've been breeding in the valley since then. I was very enthusiastic at the time, and I went across the Otter Trust and said, what can I do to help the otters? Shall I build artificial holds, artificial breeding holds? And they said, leave them alone. The best thing you can do is don't go looking for them, don't go surveying them. Leave them alone. The valley can cope with them, and we'll be able to sustain them don 't bother them because that 's the worst thing you could possibly do
1: So how many would you judge without disturbing them? <laughs> how many are there in the valley now i
2: don 't know, but there 's definitely a family breeding on a regular basis uh, they 've been seen throughout don 't water and on the River Derwent, and they've been seen in the Endleth Valley as well. But for such a large animal, they're just very, very good at hiding. One of the good things about the otters coming back is we did have mink in the valley prior to that, and mink were introduced, and they're obviously quite a nasty, invasive species that were killing a lot of ground-nesting birds. And a female otter with young will not tolerate mink in her area, so they pushed them out.
1: In terms of the uh, National Trust, generally, what's their ambition for renewables?
2: So we've already achieved our target to be 50% powered by green energy. We're working towards being 100% powered by green energy and we've got a target date of 2030 for that. This week we're actually having solar panels fitted to the roof of our office. So everything's still going in the right direction and we're working very, very hard to hit our goals.
1: We come through the gate, uh, along the path that led to a point where we crossed a a tributary of Ray's Beck. The, uh, actually called Beck itself, runs through a a heck, a hanging gate, which stops debris and sheep getting through. And we come onto a paved bit of path, and ahead of us, up the steep bank, is evidence of tree planting of various sorts. And it looks pretty young growth at the moment. And Roy, I think you can give us a bit of a story behind what's going on here.
2: It's erosion control, we worry about the hillside slipping. It's obviously shown signs of slipping in the past, those deep runnels. So it's fenced off to actually hold the hill together. But the benefits of that are we've got new woodland planted in this area, got heather coming back in again, and you can see the difference between the heather inside and outside the fenced off area. It's been going now for about 10 years, and the vegetation has already changed massively. This will also help Hold back water, which will help prevent flooding downstream. It'll hold back water so it's released more slowly, which will help keep the hydro running for longer. There's just layers and layers of just brilliant potential for this. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: benefits in it. And uh, visually, far more texture to the setting. I love to see the clumps of heather, which will obviously just expand and expand. And uh, come August, uh, the slope will be a glorious purple. Rather like Grange Fell behind us on Capple Side, Heather Knot, which are uh, resplendent with heather. As you got the soap, you'll obviously get different sound effects from different bird life. Yeah, one of the things
2: I do with the local school groups when I take them out is we stop in the woodlands and just listen to see how many birds and different noises we can hear. And then we stop out in the open fell or in a grazed pasture field and try and listen to the different noises. And you can hear yourself in the background. There's just loads of bird noise, there's loads of wildlife, there's loads of life. Whereas if it's grazed really heavily, we don't get those sort of noises,
1: that sort of life. You can hear it now. Yeah, and that robin singing his little heart out. What's the National Trust's approach to plastic or whatever form of tree guards? Yeah, we've taken
2: large numbers of plastic tree guards out of the landscape, especially in this area, and we've moved completely away from using plastic tree guards. So the last uh, few trees I've put in with guards around them, we're using uh, sheep wool-based guards. It's like compressed sheep's wool, so that when they fall apart and degrade, they just disappear into the landscape as they would naturally. Are they resilient to the elements? Yes, so far so good, and there's obviously a lot of research gone into them. So yeah, I'm really hopeful. It saves us having to take the guards
1: out of the landscape. It saves us putting plastic into the
2: landscape. Yes, the way forward.
1: Well, uh, we've had enough stationary conversation. I think we do uh, a little bit of sweat <laughs> as we approach the steep bank uh, heading towards High Tove. There's a nice pitch pass to set us underway. We come up uh, the bank uh, through the gate and onto the soggy moorland. Taking a pause to look back, our attention was highlighted by the sound of two deltas of geese flying north which maybe we picked up in the recording. We watched them in amazement before we started talking. They're heading towards the Solway generally from here. You can actually see through beyond Bothell Wind Farm to the Nith Valley. But the view from where I'm standing, uh, I can see towards High Rays and the Bimple top of of Stickle and the very pronounced dark slope of Eagle Crag and then round by Crinkle Crags, Bow Fell, Esk Pike, Glaramara, Lingmell, Great Gable, Pillar, Dale Head, High Spy, Crag Hill, Hopegill Head, Grisdale Pike, right the way through to Winlatter. Wonderful view. Roy, this is your territory. Have you climbed any of the crags we can see? Yeah,
2: just about everything you can see actually. I want to say I've lived and worked here for 40 years and this has been my playground. It's fantastic. Any days off, I can get out. I get out on the hills.
1: Have you got a of your favourite crag?
2: I really like Glarimara. The views from Glarimara are fantastic. It's relatively easy to get up, uh, and it's normally quiet, so perhaps I shouldn't say I really like it and advertise it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you, you've been up uh, Dove's Nest Crag and uh, Cam Crag on the other side.
2: And I'm a climber as well, or I used to be, so yeah, I've
1: done an awful lot of rock climbing in the valley as well. Brilliant. It's a fabulous setting. It's just a calm day at the moment. A bit soggy on the foot, though. Well, we've come north along the ridge, latterly beside a fence. we come to the area that is marked on the Ordnance Survey as the Piewits. Uh People will know the word Piewit, uh is the sound of the lapwing, the green plover. And to the north of here on... High rig or low rig, the northern tip of there, there's the Chewit Tarn. That's another reference to it. And here we've got this slab path that so snakes through this boggy area. And on a day like today, with uh, frog spawn visible in the pools reflecting the wonderful blue sky, it's a gorgeous place to be and it's so calm. And now's a chance to reflect on my second guest of the day, Sean from Cumbria Wildlife Trust, with his distinctive Canadian accent, which is lovely. See you Sean could you introduce yourself and how you came to be involved with this overall project
3: well I'm uh, Sean Procopiu and uh yeah I'm with Cumbria Wildlife Trust I'm a peatland restoration officer I've been here for about six years now in in Cumbria and uh I love it i done a lot of wetland work in schooling and that sort of thing and so this was a perfect opportunity to really fuse that education with boots on the ground conservation work in uh, helping to restore these peatlands. And Armboth in itself, honestly I can't take credit for it, I'm I'm more of the the caretaker of the site currently. The credit goes to some of my colleagues for initially setting up the restoration here but I've been overseeing it now for the past year and uh, it's just been brilliant to see the, the site develop as it has.
1: Standing in the midst of uh, the Pewit's today, it's a transformed site, and I can remember back 20 years ago what it was like, and I'm sure, Roy, with 40 years' experience in this place, you've got memories of it. Yeah, it
2: was absolutely horrendous before the peat bog restoration work happened. I mean, there was people hugging the fence line to try and stay next to it, actually climbing along the fence line. It was a boggy mess, six foot high peat hags with bare peat, up to 200 metres wide in some areas.
1: There was a step-by-step process to restore this setting. Can you describe this to us, Sean? Uh,
3: Yeah, I mean, initially what we do is you have to do a ground investigation. And so, you know, all the walkers who struggle through this for an afternoon, we do it day after day. We'll do points initially, and so at each point we'll take peat depths, we'll take vegetation quadrats, and we'll do a general... Overview of the condition around us. Probably about every hundred meters or so, and you do a grid across the whole of the site, try and encompass all the erosion features. And then as you're walking that, you're also taking into account the heights of some of the hags, gullies, which are basically water courses that drag the peak down the hillside into account. So this is all things that we're kind of looking in, that preliminary assessment. From there, we do a lot of desktop work. So we get on the computers and we map it all, highlight areas where the erosion is worse. What can be done? From there, we then start to build a picture of what's going to be required. How many meters of hags are going to need to be reprofiled? How many bunds we're going to have to put in to hold water back? What's All, a bund? Oh, a bund. A bund is basically just like a, a peep dam. They can come in really any size, but we build them to hold water up on the fell side. And uh, we create pools using that. And these are really interesting. One of my favorite things, because what they do is they are basically nucleuses for bog formation, and that's where you get your sphagnum starting to colonize, and that builds up, grows, and then that allows it to slowly spread across the bog and kick-start that restoration once we've taken all the sharp edges off. Once we've gotten all that planned, we'll put it out to contract with a tender, and we'll get a contractor to come in and and restore it for us.
1: Have you got an idea how these landscapes degraded in the first place?
3: It's a whole combination of many things over a long period of time. It's uh, historic peat cutting. In some areas, they may have been burning. Climate change, there's so many factors that I think have had an impact on what we see here. Overgrazing grazing um, is another. Walkers going across, but certainly not, uh, not vilify anyone. Each one of those has kind of chipped away at the landscape, created cracks and... Uh, The peat is just crumbling away, drying out, compounds upon itself over the centuries until you're left with what was initially described here, just massive six-foot hags and bare peat as far as the eye can see, boggy mess of black water in between them all.
1: Why did the degraded landscape actually matter?
3: Peatlands and and these types that we see here, they're incredibly important for a lot of reasons. They store a lot of carbon and so obviously when we restore these areas it's about holding back that carbon. When they dry out, when they crumble and get washed down into the rivers, when the dust gets blown into the wind, it's all liberating that carbon which is obviously a massive problem that we're currently just starting to try and deal with. Restoring these areas is one way of doing that and not only that, there's a lot of knock-on benefits as well for things like water quality where you get a lot of that peat sediment into our water makes it very dirty, dark and treatment costs to do that, just the the impacts on people's health and that sort of thing is all things that get taken into consideration. Not to mention as well, we've got uh, flood alleviation. Essentially acts like a sponge to kind of reform. You're slowing that water and uh, you're reducing that flood risk down the way. That's just a a few reasons why it's so important to uh, restore these areas.
1: What I'm looking at here is a whole sequence of pools and uh, there are bunds holding the ponds together in effect. Can you describe it a little bit more, Sean?
3: Yeah, so I mean essentially what we initially had here is, I think Roy previously mentioned, you've got these massive hags. So what you're seeing, all these little like hillocks almost that you see around you, these were once those hags and so they've been reprofiled to a stable angle rather than calving off and all that peat being lost. It allows water to run off them without the same erosive effect. Um, and then so what we've done is we've created these buns in between them to then further pool some water and allow the sphagnum to establish other plants to start getting their roots in and to stabilize it. And then when you see some of the more artificial constructs that we've got, like the timber dams, uh, the stone, those to slow the flow down to allow sediment to build up as well. So these would have been the areas where water was really flowing at probably quite a rapid pace, washing that peat by putting these dams in. We're basically slowing that flow, and we're allowing all that peat to drop out of suspension and remain on the fell side. Hopefully, eventually, you'll get the sphagnum to start to colonize those areas as well.
1: How long does peat take to develop in depth?
3: Really depends on your conditions, but generally what we work on is about a millimeter a year in good conditions. So basically, you get a a meter of peat is about a thousand years of deposition. What's the unusual characteristic of sphagnum moss? Oh, I mean, oh I love sphagnum. It's a fantastic plant. Um, it really is almost a bit of a, an ecosystem engineer. It's so perfectly adapted to these bog conditions. It, it holds up to 28 times its own weight in water. What I was saying before about it, it acts like a sponge, really. And it's due to sphagnum, you get a lot of that water retention. It obviously grows in these really inhospitable kind of conditions for most other plants. In doing so, it also engineers the environment too. So, you know, when we talk about peat, why it doesn't degrade, it's a lot of it is to do with enzymes that sphagnum produce that basically stops bacteria and decomposition from occurring, allows that build-up of the peat. And I assume there is only one sphagnum moss. Is that true? To the trained eye, there's dozens of species here in the UK alone. The amazing thing about them is each one inhabits like a different ecological niche. So you'll get the ones that are in the pools are very well adapted to be an aquatic plant. And then you have the ones that grade as you get wetter to drier, forming hummocks and things like that. These beautiful domes of peat. There's many species and each one of them kind of serves a different purpose and can also tell you a wealth of information about what you're looking at uh, in the landscape.
1: Could you give us a perspective on the sequence of plants that we can see here?
3: It's been grazed, and because there was so much bare peat, you have to plant it up. So you've got your drier areas and your wetter areas. In wetter areas, we'll tend to favour cotton grass. And uh, there's two species, the common cotton grass, and we also have the tail cotton grass. The common cotton grass particularly likes the pools and the, and the wet areas, so that starts to stabilize those, and it grows quite well on bear peat. And then the, uh, the tail cotton grass as well, that will form dense stands. And again, it's all about just trying to lock in that peat and that soil and stabilize it. We've also done sphagnum plugs here as well, because in, in a lot of areas the sphagnum was obviously very depleted, and so we've picked species that will do very well in the pools or in some of the drier areas as well. Finally, we've planted some of the, the species that will stabilize some of these much drier hummocks where the species like the cotton grass and the sphagnum won't do as well. And, and those are more like your woody shrubs. So we were looking at heather, um, bilberry, And crowberry. Essentially what all these are doing, again, is is stabilizing that bare peat. So once we've reprofiled it, it's stable enough at that angle, but even heavy rain, wind will tear that away. And so what we're looking at here is by planting these shrubs, encouraging them to thrive, we lock in these large areas of peat. And you've even got some sieves here, rushes, that naturally grow there. You can't stop them. (laughs) And rushes are a really interesting one because they're very indicative of like nutrient enrichment and so what's been happening is as we've been churning up the soil and peat and and, and doing all that, it has liberated some nutrients and so we will get these rushes but once this community like establishes itself, once we get more of the pristine bog habitat, these, they, they won't do so well. Once it acidifies, the nutrients get lower, they will disappear eventually.
1: This whole process is a classic example of collaborative work and partnership across a range of organisations.
3: Absolutely, I think it's a great success story where two landowners have come together, jointly created a restoration spanning both of their ownership areas. Uh, so you have the National Trust and obviously United Utilities. Um, and then just for us to be on board, Cumbria Wildlife Trust to help facilitate it alongside uh, individuals like Fix the Fells who helped assisted with the path work.
1: Roy, how would you like to see this uh, landscape evolve?
3: Yeah, well, this is a fantastic success.
2: What we see media around us is wonderful. Wouldn't it be great to see that progress and do the next step on and the next step on so the whole of the fell is improved rather than just a small isolated area? So, yeah, I very much think this is brilliant. It's fantastic, but it's a stepping stone to the future. We need to do more of it.
3: This is actually just phase one of a broader arm both project. Phase two was completed, uh, not this past winter, but the winter before. And then I think we have a view for a third phase south towards Ulscarf that we'll be looking to do at some point in the near future as well. So on Roy's point about starting to see it all interconnect, uh, you know, that that is something we hope to see in the future.
1: Roy, have the walkers and the public at large reacted to this?
2: Yeah, we have had people just email us in uh, saying what a fantastic job the teams have done up here
3: when we are out here doing surveys if we're monitoring if we've got volunteer parties we often get people who come and stop and just say it's it's such a vast improvement on what it was and uh you know not having had that experience you know in the past myself of seeing what it was like initially to have you know some of my friends who know the area and just to say what an immense joy it is now to to walk across it it's brilliant i'm just looking forward to just seeing how it develops can't say enough about it yeah
1: well, I've uh, had a great deal of pleasure being here today because I've been in here in torrential rain when it's been a horrendous bog and I've hated it. And I don't often hate fells, but I now love it here now. It's an absolute joy. I need you to go up high seat, but actually we've got to backtrack to High Tove uh, and uh, probably sign off there. Well, we made our way back to the summit, Cairn, on High Tove. The one curious thing about this summit is that the path from that went over to Armboth, the public footpath to Armboth, it's the only pass in the Lake District that actually goes over the summit of a fell rather than the col or a gap in the hills. So that's a quirk in itself. High Tove means the high tuft. Now, I've described the view looking west, but I can describe the view looking east, because that is a stomping view in its own right, although far more intimate. Uh, you can see Brent Cather to the north, with its famous ridges. Then you've got the wonderful ridgeline of the Helvellyn Range, from Cloughhead, Great Dodd, Stuybarra Dodd, Watson's Dog, of course. <laughs> Watson's Dog? <laughs> Watson's Dodd. Um, Rays, Side. just see the top of Castacam. Hellvelin Lower Manor, Hellvelin, Nethermost Pike, Dollywagon Pike, a Thruto seat sandal and a bit of cloud shadow on the western slopes of Fairfield. Anyway, there's a great view for you. It's four years at least since we had the joy of being with you for the first time, Roy. You were then talking about retiring. We must be nearer that point, so this would be an apt time to do some quickfire questions to rekindle some of your memories. What was your first memory of the Lake District? Well, the first job I did with the Lake District as a volunteer
2: for the National Trust was on Friars Crag, fencing out the sections down there to try and encourage the plants to grow and the trees to grow, and it's done really well.
1: Have you got a particularly much-loved viewpoint?
2: Yeah, Friars Crag. I mean, I live quite close to Friars Crag and have a coffee down there most mornings, and it's
1: just a wonderful place to just start the day. You are a lucky boy. (laughs) Have you got a particularly memorable walk you would like to share with listeners? The western
2: shores of Dirtwater I love. It's really nice and quiet. It's quieter on the other side. Going through the woodlands
1: is, is just great and loads of wildlife. Otters occasionally. Otters occasionally. When you go on a long walk, yeah. where does your mind wander?
2: Oh, I just love being in the mountains and the fact that you, your mind can wander. I just love being in the hills. It's my happy place.
1: Have you a favourite season in the year in the Lake District?
2: A proper winter. A proper winter with snow on the ground.
1: When was the last one you remember? It's a little while, although
2: a few weeks ago I was up on the hills when it was snowing a lot, and it was just great. It, it's more challenging, and I enjoy that challenge.
1: If you were to be able to return to some period in the history of Cumbria, is it one that you could pinpoint and say, oh, I'd like to be a witness to that?
2: No, I think now. I think we're living at the best time now. Looking forward to the future,
1: definitely living now, not in the past. It's an interesting time. Have you a favourite uh, heroine or hero... Dead or alive relating to Cumbria? Mike
2: Nixon, previous uh, team leader of Keswick Mountain Rescue Team. Absolute dude, absolute star and uh, done a huge amount. Very, very understated man.
1: Everybody needs an advocate and it's great to hear you say that. Have you a from food that you really relish?
2: Oh, cumulus sausage.
1: I mean, uh, without hesitation. It's just great, isn't it? Yes, yeah, you can't beat a good German sausage. <laughs> <laughs> if you were Prime Minister for just one day, is there one thing that you would do to safeguard their heritage, their landscapes, the culture of the Lake District?
2: I think the biggest threat at the moment is climate change. It's a real threat. Uh, we don't know if we've fallen off the cliff yet, but we're heading definitely towards the cliff. And it needs to be taken incredibly seriously. For the Lake District, the lakes need more money spent on visitor infrastructure. Basic gates, aisles, bridges, toilets in the car parks, that sort of thing. We're getting huge numbers of visitors. We need to provide um, a world-class service for them.
1: So whether you're a national trust or a national park, whichever organisation it is, it needs the money. That's right. Uh, what do you describe as the unique quality and magic of the Lake District? Oh, I mean, I've travelled and climbed all over the world, and I always love coming back to the lakes.
2: As you said, it's unique, and it's very precious, and it's very special. It's a combination of that man-made landscape, but the wildness that's underneath.
1: Uh, When a few friends gather with your ashes, perhaps, is there a scattering point, or do you envisage a place being associated with you? I'd say I love Glarimara, perhaps Glarimara, although
2: I don't think we should be scattering our ashes on the high fells. It is changing the vegetation in some areas. So I think for people to gather and remember me, Glarimara, but my ashes can go anywhere.
1: Man, It's been great to be with you again, Roy. And and Sean, it's been very special. I've learned a great deal about bogs. I now know what a bog standard is, and you've established it. (laughs) I hope to see you both again on another Country Stride Endeavour.
0: journey's end and we are just off the summit of high tove i've realized Mike, i can walk home from here so <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna do that anyway what a lovely day i mean wonderful to see these big blue skies as i said i live not too far from here i come up here a huge amount one of my favorite walks in the lake district is from my valley uh, over here and watching this restoration happen in real time has been a real pleasure and both uh roy and sean picked up that kind of joy that hope i suppose of seeing restoration and i share it completely i really recommend coming up here it looks fabulous it's the first time you've been back though it is
1: it's uplifting the revival of it is so special uh, and judging by the number of people we've seen here proves that this is a a much needed and much loved place. You get a whole new perspective on the Lake District once you're on this central ridge and I always think of Old Scarf which I can see now is lit by sunlight low saddles got cloud on it but I always think of that as being the middle of the Lake District so really at the heart of things here.
0: Didn't somebody do some kind of research and they put a pen in the middle of the National Park or something like that or maybe the middle of the Wainwright I can't even remember, <laughs> but it's generally thought Armberfell, I think it was
1: Oh, Armberfell
0: se- Which, of course, we well, can see, I think Yeah,
1: we can see it yeah, from here it is, yeah. uh, It's an unsung hero in that terms
0: And also, inspiration in the valley bottom as well That little hydro scheme One of three, so few people know about what's happening here And the National Trust is doing a really good job of this I don't think they talk about it loudly enough at all But there we go, that's my, uh, my little political comment but the thing that really fascinated me down there, Mark, and I hadn't figured this at all before today, was the Corpse Road, the historic Corpse Road, on the direct opposite side, zigzagging up as the old pony track over to the valley that we can see now, so yes. over to uh, Wytheburn.
1: They kept them apart, that's right, either side of Ray's Beck, and of course Ray's Beck came up to uh, Piewitz. I didn't realise that it was just an arterial route either. No, it was busy. It was a kind of uh,
0: Birmingham of its day. (laughs) Anyway, we're uh, tying things up now, Mark. We're on episode number 99. It's lovely to finish this whole pre-century period with a a, a lovely uplifting podcast.
1: It's good to be back on the Fells as well.
0: And it's Yes, it's really nice to be on the Fells. Number 100, we're on the Fells again. So we're going up Helm Crag with uh, a selection of people. We've got Rob and Harriet Fraser. We've got... Bill Burkett Bill Burkett, local legend And we have also
1: Gordon Bambra
0: Yeah, a gentleman who's celebrating his 90th birthday by climbing the fell with us as we celebrate our 100th which will be absolutely fabulous and we've also roped in a load of friends from across the years to talk about what the lake district means to them so i'm very much looking forward to that Uh, our usual housekeeping if you'd like to support us go to www.countrystride.co.uk you can sign up for our newsletter there you can gift us a small amount of money and or buy any one of our guidebooks and we should say mark that the new guide, the Ambleside Walking Companion, will be out in about two weeks' time, so probably about a week after this podcast lands. It's brilliant. 16 walks in and around Ambleside. It's been great fun compiling it. Absolutely. We've had a blast, haven't we?
1: Yeah, and I'm moving on to the ground we're standing
0: on now. That's true. Keswick Walking Companion begins as of now. Uh, anyway, that's it for us on this monumental 99th episode, <laughs> which I've really enjoyed. It's been absolutely fabulous uh, on this wonderful day. I'm going to get an ice cream cone and put a flake into it. Are Celebrate you? the 99. Oh, right. Well, it's good to end this uh, period of time with a horrific pun. It wouldn't be quite the same without them, would it? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you for number 100.